pray and then um, uh, we'll jump into the word. Father God, we are so thankful because you have given us the opportunity to know you and to know you through your word, which is infallible and unchanging and uh, inerrant and perfect. And so we can we can have a rock solid uh, faith that is uh, uh, not simply defined by by loose spiritual principles or experiences or or a general hope, but we can have actual certain knowledge that the Lord God has in fact saved us, that he has sent his son, that we can know what the future holds uh, in terms of our souls. And Lord God, uh, uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for the certainty that comes from knowing the word. And I do pray now that as we as we gather, you would bind up the brokenhearted, you would uh, break the proud hearts, that you would uh, uh, feed those who are hungry and coming to the word, and that those who are feeling washed to and fro and thrown to and fro in the in the world today or in their, their own situations in their life, Lord God, that you would ground them with the anchor that holds uh, uh, through the veil, that holds us fast, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We do pray, Lord God, that you would bless us in this way by your Holy Spirit, for it is in Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, open up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the, uh, the, uh, uh, the church that is faithful. This is a faithful church that is undergoing all kinds of uh, persecution and suffering, but are holding fast for the sake of Christ's name. And we read uh, the letter from Christ to the Philadelphians in verse 7. Follow with me in your own Bible. If you don't have one, there is, of course, one on the screen. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and none will shut, who shuts and none opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who have, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, the city of my God, which comes down from, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. Well, this is a, a glorious, glorious uh, 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 letter that Jesus himself writes through John to the church in Philadelphia. Oh, I said before, they are a faithful church and they are persevering through all sorts of things, um, especially persecution. And again, like a couple of the other churches, the persecution is at the hands of the Jews in the city. So we're going to first look at what, how Jesus introduces himself in verse 7, and then we're going to look at how Jesus uses, he graciously uses, his conquering church. Then we're going to see how Jesus graciously protects his conquering church, and then we'll look at how Jesus graciously rewards his conquering church. So look at, look at Jesus. There is so much Old Testament packed into this, these, these short few sentences. 
This is going to be the only time that Jesus introduces himself when he doesn't borrow from the you know, vision that John had of chapter 1. Remember, every, every letter he's opened up with, I am Jesus, who, and then uh, steals from that vision of chapter 1 and uses some of that language. This time, he doesn't do that. He actually just borrows straight from Old Testament language when he says that he is the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and none will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So first of all, we'll look at the fact that he calls himself the Holy One, the True One. This is uh, uh, this letter, in fact, the whole, the whole letter to the Philadelphians actually draws very heavily from the book of Isaiah, the prophetic book looking forward to the new covenant and everything God would do through them, uh, through it, uh, in the book of Isaiah. And what is being communicated by the language of the Holy One, the True One, is language of divinity. So in, in Isaiah, over 20 times, the language is used where, where God calls himself the Holy One of Israel. If you've read through Isaiah, you're familiar with that phrase, frequently comes up. In Mark 1 and Luke 4, that language starts being applied to Jesus by demons. They know God of the Old Testament. They know the Holy One of Israel. And then they start seeing uh, Jesus in the flesh and they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or in John 6, verse 69, the disciples actually say, they say to Jesus, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So the New Testament takes Old Testament language of God, of Yahweh, and applies it wholesale to the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've already seen happen over and over again in these books, uh, in these letters that Jesus has written in Revelation. But there's more to it than just the fact that he's God. It's more the fact that he is God in his divine, sovereign rule and reign who judges the world. So in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, all of the same language comes up and it's in the language of God or Jesus judging the people on earth who are his rebels. So in Revelation 6 verse 10, the, the people praising God say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, as it says here in verse 7 in chapter 3. Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Now, verse 10 in this letter in Philadelphia will pick up that language and say that Jesus is about to judge the people who dwell on earth. So, so in other words, we have the same language being used in Revelation 3 as in Revelation 6. And so we can draw a line between them and see that the same vibe is being given off. The same meaning is coming through. And that is that Jesus is not just God, but holy God in judgment. He is the holy one, the true one. We can also dig in a little bit to where he says the true one. And this is sort of, again, Old Testament language for the fact that he is the one true living God. This is, this is part of the, the, the foundations of the Christian faith, is that we believe in monotheism. There is only one God. Mono, single, theism, coming from the Greek word theos, meaning God. So there's only one God. We, we don't agree with the coexist bumper stickers that I know your neighbors have, because we're on the Gold Coast. It's very popular. Where we don't think that there are multiple ways to the same heaven and multiple names for the same God. It is rather there is only one true living God. The Bible affirms that there are other gods, with a small g, but they're all either demons dressing up or the figments of, of the imagination of humankind. But there is only one true living God. And that is being communicated by what Jesus is saying here, especially because in Philadelphia, 
the Jews were claiming that they worship the true God and that this Jesus was no God at all. And yet here is Jesus saying to the church, who is surrounded by the persecuting Jews, I am the true one. I am the only true living God. In fact, Jeremiah 10 verse 10 uses this very same language and says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. You see how this is all the very same language? The language of holy and true is saying there's one God, it's Jesus, and he judges his enemies. So for Philadelphia, they're being comforted by the fact that the one they're worshipping, as opposed to the synagogue of Satan, the one they're worshipping and being persecuted for worshipping, is not some owly brand off-brand, uh, uh, a liar God that, they, that they've concocted up some sort of story about after he died. They're not, they're not worshipping that. Where, where their faith was failing or maybe wavering, Jesus is saying to them, I am the one and only true God. Do not let your, your faith fail. But those who had rejected Jesus the Messiah, but still tried to hold on to the name of Jude, and kept the system of sacrifices, and kept the temple, and kept the priests, and all the impressive stuff, and the fact that the Jews got religious freedom with Rome, they're trying to keep the old covenant religion alive when it expired a long time ago. Jesus is saying, they are false. I am the one true God. And then he goes on with this language of the keys. So look, the next line, he says, I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know this is the classic verse that you put out when you're coming up to an exam final, or you, you've got uh, some big event coming up and you pray, and, and you, you know it's, it's, it's the mug verse that says, God opens doors and he opens opportunities and no one can shut it. Or we sometimes mingle it up and say, where God opens a door, or he closes the door, he'll always open a window. Or we, you know, let's bump into some actual context of what he means. What does it mean that Jesus is opening the door and no one can shut it and he shuts what no one can open? Again, it's coming from the book of Isaiah. If you're taking notes, you can write down Isaiah 22, 22, very easy to remember. And there, God, through, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking of, of uh, the situation where there is the king Hezekiah, one of David's sons, and a, the, the treasurer, or the man who is going to become the treasurer over David's house. The guy who's in charge of all of the king's riches. And Isaiah is prophesied as saying, And I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim. Eliakim was the uh, secretary over, I think I said Hezekiah before. Hezekiah is the king, Eliakim is the treasurer, the secretary, the one who controls the money. And Isaiah says, I will place on his shoulder, Eliakim, the key of the house of David, he shall open and no one shut, and he shall shut and no one opens. So, so a straightforward quote right here from Isaiah 22. What is it that Jesus is communicating? It's pretty simple to see that once you understand the history, that Eliakim had taken over from a, from a corrupt treasurer who was using the, the, the riches of the kingdom to build his own great, uh, uh, beautiful grave when he died. He was using all the riches on himself, and God threw him out and was saying, I'm going to bring in Eliakim. And Eliakim was around when Sennacherib, the army of the Assyrians, came up against Jerusalem, and, and they besieged them, and they were around, and for, for, many, uh, for many nights they were there and, and, and uh, mocking the Israelites. And then with Eliakim and Hezekiah, they pray, and the Lord God sends an angel and slaughters 185,000 soldiers in the night. 
They wanted to come through the doors to the kingdom and they would not be open to them. They had been shut. Even more so, they wanted money from Jerusalem. They were saying, pay us off and we'll go. Just give us the right money, give us the taxes to the Assyrians, and then you can be a small vassal state under our king. Don't trust your God. He's just like all the other gods and we'll kill them too. Nothing stands in the way of the Assyrians. And he was Eliakim. No door was open to the treasury or to the city because he was faithful. And the same is being said of Jesus here. Last week we saw in, uh, uh, in Thyatira that Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. That was one of the big, big uh, themes that Jesus was lying down, was laying down. But now it's not that Jesus is the king, but he has a very responsible secretary, maybe Michael the archangel or your, your frugal auntie who died and went to heaven. He's got them watching over the riches because he can be a little bit you know, spent and heavy. It's not like that with Jesus. Every, every part of authority in the kingdom of God, he has. So he's both king and he's secretary over the riches. And so he is saying of himself that I open the riches of God's kingdom to whomever I want. And I close it off to whomever I want. Because here's the Jews in Philadelphia, much like they would in the rest of the New Testament. And they would be saying of the church, which was made up of, of unclean, uncircumcised, formerly pagan Gentiles who got together and called this thing a church, and also what they would see as apostate Jews. Jews who had left the Judaic system and gone and started worshipping this human, this crucified fool called Jesus, and entered the church. Now this is just the most filthy group of people you can ever imagine. Uncircumcised and apostate Jews in this one group called the church, they were blocked off from ever coming back into the temple. From ever coming back into the synagogue. They were cast out and they would think that God's kingdom for the righteous was closed off to this church. And Jesus is saying, I am the one they think they're waiting for. I'm the true God. I'm the one with authority over the kingdom of God. And to you, I have opened it. No one on earth gets to close the door that I have opened to those who have faith in me. The, the Jews love the idea of, of the kingdom of God being a badge of status. They loved that the, there was a high bar that you had to jump through, you had to prove yourself and earn your way in, and so it was all works-based because, because then it's a VIP club. Then it's a status, like it means something if it's a high bar and you're in. But Jesus came and showed that the kingdom of God was for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God was opened up for the lowly and the sinful and the unclean and the humble. And so he's saying, opposed to the Jews, opposed to those who were in fact in a synagogue of Satan, not a synagogue of God. He was saying, they lie. The bar is not high. You know, this is good news for us and all of our, our friends, our children, our family members, and those we meet on the streets. The bar is extremely low because it is at the same time extremely high. The, the bar into God's kingdom is infinitely high because the standard is perfection up to God's standards. And yet because no one could meet it, God came down in Jesus Christ and met that standard for us. That he obeyed the entire law and then took our sin upon himself and died under the wrath of God so that now the, the doors are swung open and though the standards to please God are infinitely high, they have been met by somebody else and he has opened the door for us. So now it's a free call. There is no VIP badge. There is no inner circle in the Christian kingdom. It is simply come one, come all, filthy, sinner, guilty, rich, poor, any other combination of how you want to identify yourself. Everybody is welcome to you. And to the proud, 
and the self-righteous and the meritorious, that is horrible news. But Jesus is saying, I have opened that door. The, the self-righteous are not the ones who have the keys to the kingdom anymore. If you remember back to Matthew 23, if you're familiar with that, as Jesus just destroys the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers of Jerusalem, who are exactly all of this. Self-righteous, kingdom of God is for us, we're clean, we earned it, others can't come in, throw a big, a big marketplace in the temple so that the Gentiles can't come in. He says to them in Matthew 23 verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. This is what defined the Jewish aristocracy, the elites. It was all of the VIP club, open only to them, but Jesus says they're not even going in because they were not believing. They did not have actual contrite, humble hearts to believe in God's grace. They shut the doors on themselves and everybody else, and Jesus says, I broke it open by my shed blood, my bruised body, my death in the grave, and my resurrection. The, 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 as Psalm 24 tells us, those ancient doors are swung open and everybody can come in behind Jesus Christ, who now sits on the throne inside. This is the good news of the gospel, that the enemies of the church could not understand, would not understand, and were persecuting the church because they did not understand. So to the Philadelphians, Jesus is saying, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Not your, your sin or death or your enemy or the devil, not even God himself. None of those things can shut what God has sent me to open up. As Romans 8 tells us, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in other words, none of those things can shut the door that Christ has opened by his powerful blood. Amen? Amen. That's the good news of the gospel. You have nothing to fear if Christ has opened the door to salvation to you. And so here, there's the picture of Jesus. I'm the true God. I'm the true ruler of God's kingdom. I open the door to whom I wish. And now we see how he graciously uses his conquering people. So look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So now he starts doubling up on the, on the meaning of the open door scenario. I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here we start seeing that uh, as Jesus addresses Philadelphia, he has no rebukes for them. Uh, similar to Smyrna, we start realizing they were, they were pure. They were persecuted because of their faithfulness, and they were faithful in and through their persecution. Jesus doesn't come and, and reprimand them for their worldliness, or their false teaching, or their female pastors, or their idolatry, or any of that. He comes and he encourages them, and he tells them, I know your works. He says, you have a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Down in verse 10, he's going to say, you have kept my word about patient endurance. So this is a persecuted church. Is pushing through difficulty. We remember from Acts 19, when we looked at this in the first, first week in Ephesus. In Acts 19, we're told that 
the word of God went to all of Asia from where Paul was preaching in Ephesus. So at some point, Philadelphia was either visited by Paul, or somebody went to Ephesus, got saved, and came back to Philadelphia, or Paul sent out one of the young guys to go out and plant a church in Philadelphia. We don't know how they got planted exactly, but we know that since that day, they, unlike some of the other churches, have not caved to the persecution, but they're small in number. So Jesus says they have little power. Their true power lies in the fact that they have kept his word and not denied his name. This is what makes a church stand or fall according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not, not by might, not by power, we were reading last week in Zechariah, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what does the spirit do in the church of God? The spirit in the church of God makes us submissive to the word of God, accepting the word of God, obeying the word of God, believing the word of God, and conforming to the Son of God. This is what defines a church. Many, many things are outside of the church's power. Our size, how much money we've got in the bank, the culture on the outside, the number of adherents to other religions, our own difficulties or, or external situations going on in each of our individual and family lives. We can't control much of that. But we can, by God's Spirit, control whether we are people who apologize and back away from what the Word says, or whether we are defined by faithfulness to the Word, and living out the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see that these two things which they are, they are affirmed for are the two things that we see pop up all throughout Revelation. That they are keeping the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. Or the name of Jesus Christ. Everything that is wrapped up in the, the story and name and message of Jesus and the word of God that God has given to us. Those two things, those most essential things that got John thrown onto Patmos that gets Christians killed later in Revelation 12. All of that is, is being just put on perfect display by Philadelphia. They are holding on to the word of God, and they have not denied Jesus' name and testimony. They are a conquering church. But because of that, here's what gets really exciting. Because of that, Jesus is now going to use them and open up an opportunity for them to be useful in his kingdom. So look at verse 9. He says, Behold... I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, which we've already said is the, the, the Jews, the, the Jews who are no longer truly following God because they're rejecting the Christ and they're, they're actually disobeying all the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. But they call themselves Jews and are not, but lie, is what Jesus says here. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. In verse 8, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now that language, an open door, is used four other times in the New Testament and it always means an opportunity for fruitful, spirit-filled evangelism. So in Acts 14, verse 27, uh, Paul and others, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, I'm going to stay here a while, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Right? A wide door of opportunity. 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, uh, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And, in the Lord. and Colossians 4.13 says, uh, sorry, 4.3 says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So what Jesus is saying is here, not just that I open the door or shut the door to the kingdom, 
But Philadelphian Church, I'm going to open a very specific opportune door for you. But if you are faithful and go through it, there will be there will be fruitful evangelism and souls will be saved. That's what he's saying to you. It's an opportunity for fruitful evangelism. And it will bring the salvation of souls. So for their faithfulness and for their steadfastness through opposition, they were going to be rewarded with an opportunity to harvest a great number of souls. So look at verse 9, and we realize that what it's going to look like is is actually a specific group of people. And this will be the Jews in Philadelphia. The Jews who are persecuting them. They're going to see a large number of Jews be converted to the gospel. Because in verse 9 he says, I will make those, that is, that those are the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not but why. So, so the, the Jews who are persecuting the church. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, it sounds pretty vindictive as you start reading that. And if you rub your hands together and that becomes one of your life verses, you're probably got a root of bitterness somewhere in there. If you're thinking about your non-Christian mates or the, the guys who bullied you in high school for being a Christian or your college mates that made fun of you for not sleeping around, if you start thinking, yeah, I want to see them, faces in the dirt, licking the dust like Isaiah says, bowing down before me, and I'll know that God loves me, you're in the wrong place. Repent. But what it, what it is meaning is, again, he's pulling straight out of Isaiah. So listen to a, a few, verse, a few uh, verses and quotations from Isaiah, and you'll start realizing what it is that Jesus is cryptically saying is actually going to happen. Isaiah 45, verse 14, to the end of the verse he says, uh, he's speaking to the Jews and saying, In the new covenant time, there will, be, there will be your enemies, the Gentiles, who are coming to you. Here's what he says. They will come in, uh, sorry, they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. So what Isaiah is prophesying is a conversion of Gentiles into Israel's spirituality. That that would happen in the New Covenant times. Isaiah 49, verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you, and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Well, here's a big one. Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 90% of that quotation is in this letter that we're looking at now. So in the Old Testament, what, what the picture was back then in Isaiah's day was, he was saying, God is foretelling a day when the pagan nations start pressing into Israel's spiritual knowledge and realize that only the God of Israel is the true God. And they'll start pressing into the kingdom of God. That your enemies will come in that way. The Gentile enemies come and accept the true God and recognize that the Jews have the true living God. But the New Testament is, first of all, that that happened. That, that happened in the Great Commission of, of the first century, as the, and is still happening today, as Gentiles press into the Old Testament God, as is revealed through the Gospel of the New Testament, as Gentile nations become Christian, that is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. But Jesus is putting another layer on top of that and saying that in Philadelphia, it's going to happen again. 
This time, Jesus is playing the you-know-reverse card. He said, in the Old Testament, here's what was prophesied. The people of God who were who in the Old Testament? The people of God in the Old Testament were Israel, the Jews. God was saying then, the Gentiles are going to come and believe in your God. Now Jesus is saying that the spiritual Jews, the Christians, are going to have the spiritual Gentiles, who are the ethnic Jews, come into the church and realize it's the church that has the true and living God. It's the church that obeys the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the church that is the true Zion, the true temple, the true Jerusalem, the true Israel. And they realize that Jesus, that Jesus is the true God and that, that he has loved the church. Isn't that exactly what happened to Paul of Tarsus? He was persecuting the church and then he realized in a fulfillment of Isaiah that he was in fact a spiritual Gentile and had to press into the church in order to truly know God. And so, this is, an ama- this is more than just an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it's that Jesus is saying to the Philadelphian church, for your faithfulness through persecution, I'm going to use you, I'm going to give you an opportunity, and if you love your enemies enough, and if you persevere in faithfulness enough, you'll be used to convert the very people who are persecuting you. The scribes and the Pharisees used to close the door on people into the kingdom. Jesus is pointing towards his church and saying, you must not do the same. You must not have a sense of superiority that locks the doors of the kingdom in the enemy's face. That, that is glad that they're on the outside. That, is, that, that just rubs your hands together as you sing, the, sing or pray the, uh, the, the imprecatory psalms about their, their, their children being dashed and their, those nations being killed. Friends, that's, that's quite far short of the missional heart that Jesus has modeled for us, that Paul has modeled for us, and that Jesus is now commanding the church. I wonder how you think of, of those outside the church. Your atheist friends, your secular mates, your, your family members, the, the, the people you meet, the people at work, your neighbors, the whole city, the Gold Coast, Australians, pagans. How do you think of them? Do you think of them as the untouchables, the, 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 the deplorables, the detestables, the despicable people? The ones that you really hope don't come in here and, and you're so, you know, they may seem smarter, they may be richer and they may sort of make fun of you, but you've got eternal life and they don't. How's that feel? Cop that. I know no one's going to put your hand up and they meant that. But of course, we can all be tempted towards a sense of that rather than what Jesus is, is giving the reward, the opportunity to the Philadelphians was that they may be instrumental in the conversion of their enemies. And this, this just gives to us a, a, a paradigm or a, a way to think about the church and about the people outside of the church. You know, do you, do you see that the church as this static group? The people who are here are the church. The people on the outside are, are going to hell. And it's going to, you know, never shall, the, ne- uh, never shall they ever meet. Never shall they cross. That's how it's going to be for good. This is our church. We've got large walls. We've got a huge door. And we slam it in the face of anyone who tries to press in. Or like John Knox, who has ran out of his country, his home country of Scotland, for his faith, for his Protestant faith and his preaching, who had lost much and who would then be bled and bleed and would be chased around Scotland being persecuted by royalty, he still prayed to the Lord God, give me Scotland or I die. My heart bleeds for the people who are, who are being led by the thousands into the Catholic Mass and worshipping idols and have no clue what it means to have peace with God. 
or like C.T. Studd, a very rich Englishman, a batsman, who then became a missionary to Africa, China, and India. And he said, in one of his great poems as a missionary, he said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Is that your attitude to the outside? That if Jesus was truly and honestly to look into the attitude of your heart, he would say, I'm going to give you the hope of your heart. I'm going to give you a reward. And that reward, the thing that you want the most, is the salvation of the souls of the people who are outside of the kingdom. Is that what Christ sees when he looks at your heart? That would be an answer, a great answer to the Philadelphian church. The fearful and the cowardly, those with agendas for the church and preferences that are more important than Jesus' mission, which is to save souls and build the church, those people get Jesus' rebuke. And they can have their fun, luxurious life on earth. But those, those who prioritize the mission, prioritize the kingdom, prioritize the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who live so that others might come to know him. To those people, Jesus blesses, Jesus calls to his mission, and as a reward, he says, you're going to get to suffer so hard in your evangelism that there will be a great revival among your persecutors. That's got to be the heartbeat of any church. And then we see Jesus' gracious protection of his, his conquering people. His church was persevering faithfully, is offered this open door through which if they press in, there will be conversion of their enemies. To them, he promises this, this kind of cryptic, depending on your background, what you've had preconception-wise coming to the book of Revelation. He's, uh, he gives them protection for something bad that's going to be coming. It says in verse 10 and 11, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. Because you kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now there's lots of confusions and assumptions around that. Uh, uh, that, that seems to be saying that what Jesus is saying is because they did so good, he's going to let them escape from the trial. Some people see him here an allusion to some secret rapture that, that we're zipped out of the earth before the trial comes on the whole world. It is both not there and not what is being alluded to. And it doesn't happen. Rather, what Jesus is saying, and he, we can go to John chapter 17, verse 15, where Jesus uses some of the exact same words, right? Same author, John, recording what Jesus says in John 17, verse 15, when Jesus prays and he says... I do not ask that you take them out of the world. There you go. Jesus' prayer list is not that we would ever be zipped out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. So we know a few things. What Jesus is saying in Revelation 3, verse 10 and 11, when he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to, to test those who dwell on earth. First of all, he's keeping them from the trial. He's keeping them from the testing, the great suffering, but does not mean that they're escaping the suffering. Okay? This is one of the, the, the mysterious themes all throughout the book of Revelation. Christians are suffering more than anybody else, and yet it's not really suffering. Like they're crying, and they're screaming, and their heads are getting lopped off, but that's all glory because they can usher into the kingdom of Jesus. So, so, so it's not that they're being zipped away from it. It is that they are being... Saved from the judgment of it. So, so what is the event itself? I, I don't know. 
It could be something local to Philadelphia or its surrounding areas in Asia. It could be, which I think most of Revelation pushes to, is the wars between the Romans and the Jews that culminated in AD 70. Maybe it's talking about that, which, which shook the whole empire. Maybe it's something else. I don't, I don't think that's all that important. The point is that because they have endured, Jesus is going to help them endure to the end so that the judgment of the event will not apply to the Philadelphian church. The event will occur, they'll die, lots of them will go to heaven, but the judgment of the event is totally spared from them. This is what uh, the, the Puritans used to call sanctified afflictions. Do we get the same diseases as the non-Christians? Yep. Do we get the same financial disasters as the non-Christians? Yep. Do we get the same diseases and, and, uh, and, and pandemics and, and earthquakes and horrible family situations as the non-Christians? Often. So are we suffering in the same way as the non-Christians? Absolutely not. Our suffering is a blessing. In disguise, but a blessing. The, the, the teeth of it have been taken off because the harder it presses us, the further to our knees and the closer to the throne of grace we go. And the worst thing the world can do is kill us. And that's the best thing because then we're in Jesus' presence. So this is sanctified afflictions. This is what he's saying to them. Like in Revelation 7, 14, when, when John sees a, a crowd of people dressed in white, and he says, who are they? And the answer comes back, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That is, there's a tribulation, there's persecution on earth. Now, how does a faithful Christian escape persecution? By dying. Remember Smyrna? Be faithful to death. The only way you escape persecution as a faithful Christian is by dying. So you've got all these people dying and being elevated up into heaven with white robes on now, and John is seeing them, and Jesus is saying of them, they came out of the tribulation. I think that's what's being said of Philadelphia here. He's going to keep them from the test. Because they've passed the test. They're Christians. He's going to keep them from the trial. He's going to keep them from the persecution from God, from the, from the suffering, from the judgment and the wrath from God. They're, they're spared from that. All you're going to do is go through horrible physical suffering that will push you to be more and more like Jesus Christ. They have a crown, he says. You already have a crown. Don't let it be taken away from you. Here's what he's saying. As a Christian, you have both a crown and a commission. The crown is the fact that you are reigning with Jesus Christ. You are a holy prophet and a royal king in his, in his kingdom. This is the, the gospel of grace, the covenant of grace, the new covenant. You are with Christ a king and a priest and a prophet. The commission is then that with that authority given to you, with that, with that infilling of the Holy Spirit, with that purity, with that sanctification, with the word and the testimony, you now win souls to build the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus has given them the commission and now he's reminding them of their crown. You have the commission. If you shrink back from the commission, you'll lose the crown. Or you'll prove you never truly had the crown. The crown of life is on top of those who follow the commission. Do not let the world tempt you away from those. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That's what he's saying to me. Push through the persecution. It will not be judgment for you. It will be joy. And then he ends in verse 12 and 13. Here now we see Jesus graciously rewards his conquering people. To the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. This language of being a pillar in the temple and he will never go out of it is, a, is an idea of permanence, right? You know, a pillar is not a, uh, is not a marquee. It's not collapsible chairs that you take in and out of the building. A, a pillar is 
fairly important. It kind of holds up the weight of the roof. The, the pillar is a picture of permanence and we are in God's temple and never shall we go out of it. It's the idea that, that we belong and we stay in the presence of God. This is a promise for the church. This is the door that Christ opens. Christless religion, maybe it's Roman Catholicism, high-end Anglicanism that rejects the Bible, maybe it's first century Judaism, often what they have is glorious physical structures and systems and money and power that is to make up what they lack in eternal glory. And often Christ will have it that the, the church is lowly and weak and without resources and meeting in a pied hall instead of a great temple and tabernacle, and yet we are truly, in the great and marvelous spiritual sense, pillars in the temple of God. Eternal life and eternal joy is ours if we are pillars of God's temple, immovably in God's presence. Let, let me read four, three verses, the three, three sections from Revelation 21. You can go there if you want. Revelation 21, when John sees what many of us will probably think is all an end times fulfillment, right? It's, it's just a great event that he sees at the very last day of human history, and that's just not the case. Rather, what John's going to be seeing in chapter 21 is what Jesus is saying in chapter 3, which is what we are experiencing right now. And that is the glory of the promises given to the church, the new Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3, John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Now, who is the bride of Christ in the New Testament? This is for you guys. Who's the bride of Christ in the New Testament? Church. What John is seeing here is a picture of a church. Looks like a city is dressed like a temple, is called Jerusalem, is also called the Bride of Christ, the Bride of the Lamb. Or, go down to verse 9, 10, and 11. He says, uh, oh, he is told, I will show you the Bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from my God, having the glory of God. So, so the, new, the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament city on a mountain with a temple in it where God's glory was, the New Testament fulfillment is not, a, is not a building called the church, nor is it simply something in the future which physically comes down from heaven. It's the bride of Christ being built brick by brick, which is soul by soul, where the glory of God dwells in the gospel, where Jesus is put on display through proclamation. The church is the temple is the city, is the new Jerusalem, is the Mount Zion. Look at verses 22 to 27. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is... So is there a temple or is there not? No, there's no temple. There's nowhere to go and meet God, because God is the temple. God is where you meet God. You don't need walls and a curtain and some lamps and, and all sorts of things to meet God. You just go to God. That's where you meet God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into, the, into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, and no anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is there some of this that is also going to be gloriously fulfilled or consummated in the last day? When Jesus recreates the heaven and the earth? Sure. Does John want us to think, does Jesus want us to think that this is purely end time stuff? Absolutely <coughs> not. As long as you're a conquering Christian, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that is true in, sin, in a sense of the church. Because Jesus then starts saying, in verse 12, <coughs> Jesus starts saying, not only is there a unity between us and God because we're in a temple, we have this pillar language, but even further, he says, in uh, halfway through verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, the, from my God out of heaven, because the language of the church. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city and my own new name. Jesus is unified. Now, the, the question to ask here is not be so amazed that you go, wow, I wonder what the letters in the name are. I wonder what the word is. That's to miss the point. The point is that whatever language it's written in, whatever the heck it says, it's God's name. It's the name of the city in which he is its temple. And it is the name of Jesus Christ. I know what it's going to be. I know what it's going to say. But rather, the, 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 the point is not what it says. The point is what it means. And what it means is unity. As God said in the Old Testament, I will write my name on your forehead. Or they were commanded to do that in a symbolic sense of, of knowledge. It's a sense of ownership and unity. In other words, as a bride of Christ, we take his name. We join with him intimately, not just when we die, not just when Jesus comes back, but now by faith. If we conquer, then we are in the temple, in the city, on the mountain, in the Jerusalem of Jesus Christ, the great and glorious King. So I don't care what you have in your bank account, in the garage, what, what portfolio you have. I don't care what sins you've committed in the past. I don't care what uh, pro uh, projections into the future you have, what your medical diagnosis or prognosis is, what your skills are or what your family is like. None of that matters compared to what Jesus is saying. And in fact, none of it is even measured on the question of how am I in the kingdom? How do I enter the kingdom? Well, the first answer has nothing got to do with you. Jesus has to come and open it up. But Jesus has come and opened up the kingdom. So now the question simply is, do you, not your parents or your friends or your husband or your wife, but do you trust Jesus Christ? Has he written his name on your soul, on your head, and on your heart? Are you one with him? And that is something that can be answered experientially. Can a man be filled with electricity and not know it? Can a man be drowning in the ocean and not know it? Can a man be swept up by a wind and not know it? Absolutely not. Neither can a man be in the kingdom of God, be transferred from darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and not know by the Spirit of God that I have been saved. There's something to know for certain because it is of eternal ramifications. To the one who has an ear to hear this, to whom this becomes the most important thing, to be named by Christ's name and a member in God's temple. If that is unimportant to you, then you do not have ears to hear. But to those who grasp onto that with desperate hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to you, let them hear the warnings and the encouragements of this here message from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father God, your word is a treasury. There is amazing, glorious truths to behold here. And the more we dig, the more we find, and the more we realize that we will need eternity to, to start to just even begin to scratch the surface of the riches, of the glories, of the manifold wisdom that you have poured out in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we can, we can read the promises of the Old Covenant. We can read all those things prophesied. And we can read the glories of what Jesus has brought about. And we are not missing out on it simply because physically, maybe numerically, we're lacking a lot. But Father God, wherever, wherever there are those who have named the name of Christ and called on God to be saved. Wherever there are those who preach the word of God, believe the word of God, share and fellowship around the word of God, wherever that is occurring, you have a glorious temple being built. You have the, the glory of God on full display for the nations to see and start entering into. So Lord God, I pray that you would, you would just elevate our minds as we think about the, the, the glory of the church as your bride, as your uh, tool for kingdom building on earth. And where we have been apathetic towards the salvation of others, Lord, even more where we have been vindictive or holding the doors shut for the salvation of others because of embarrassment for ourselves or, or a sense of vindictiveness against our enemies, Lord God, would you give us the heart of Christ, which loves enemies even unto death? Would you allow us to embody what you have commanded to Philadelphia today? And would you allow us to be those who not just hope it, not just think it, but live it? And then see your answer to our prayers. That our children, our cousins, our friends, our co-workers start pressing into the glorious church. That they are saved by faith in Jesus. Please, Lord God, fulfill this in our midst. In the future, and may it be a very long future of Hope Church on the Gulf Coast. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen.